Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's coverage of ACR 2023 and the Arthritis panel. I've convened the faculty who covered ACR 2023 in San Diego and also virtually uh, and asked them to get together and so we could discuss what we thought were the highlights of the spondoarthritis uh, content that was presented to me. And certainly was a lot. I want to uh, first begin by uh, thanking our faculty. They were amazing in their output of, of tweets and articles and great videos, interviews. I mean, it was really astounding. If you weren't following uh, Sheila Reyes, Rachel Tate, Anthony Chan, and Bella Mehta, you really missed out. Uh, and it's not too late. We're going to be rolling out their content in the weeks to come. But let's begin. Uh, I'll ask our faculty to inter introduce themselves. Rachel. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida. Sheila. Hi, I'm Sheila Reyes from the Philippines. Anthony. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom. And Bella Mehta. Hi, I'm Bella Mehta from New York. Okay. All right. So we're going to um, discuss what we thought were the more interesting, if not influential, abstracts or sessions from the meeting. Let's begin with Dr. Reyes. Okay, so again, um, good morning, everyone, from my end, <laughs> very early morning. Um, I wanted to discuss about abstract number 2215. So it's from the group of Dr. Mary Marquez. Um, so they wanted to um, talk about how um, the, valid the, um, the validity of rheumatologists being able to diagnose AXPA um, in patients presenting with chronic back pain. And um, the objectives of their study were to assess the two-year prevalence of an AXPA diagnosis. And then um, they also wanted to explore um, the baseline differences of patients diagnosed with or without AXPA at two years. So um, data was analyzed from the SPACE cohort. So it's the spondyloarthritis caught early cohort, which is a European um, inception cohort. And um, so patients presenting with um, chronic back pain, so that would be um, more than three months, but less than two years. And, um, and in young patients, and then they were referred to a rheumatologist a rheumatologist and additional workups were then requested. So either imaging on top of HLA, B27, and other spa features. And um, so they wanted to look at if at baseline, the diagnosis of AXPA would still be the same at two years of follow-up. So out of the 552 patients with chronic back pain, 32% um, received a um, diagnosis of definite AXPA at baseline. And then um, at two years, that population um, became 30%. So of the patients diagnosed with um, AXPA, so again, um, about 89% uh, and 87% fulfilled the ACES criteria. Sorry, 89% fulfilled the ACES criteria at baseline, while 87% um, were diagnosed with based on the ACES criteria at two years. Okay, so um, what they found was that um, 
again, baseline spondyloarthritis features were more prevalent, obviously, in the patients that were diagnosed with definite AXPA at two years. And um, in, they also found out that apart from the uh, clinical features of SPA, HLA B27 status and um, sacroiliitis on imaging were the best discriminators for a diagnosis of AXPA. Okay, so um, they concluded that most patients presenting with chronic back pain um, can be accurately diagnosed by a rheumatologist at their first assessment. And um, the likelihood of getting an AXPA diagnosis or definite AXPA diagnosis at two years in patients with chronic back pain was higher if they had HLA um, positivity as well as sacroiliitis findings on imaging. So it, well, for me, when I saw this study, well, it just highlights the importance of, um, ha of doing early rheumatology referrals, especially for patients, young patients presenting with chronic back pain and how um, it emphasizes the role or the crucial role of rheumatologists in the correct diagnosis of AXPA. We know that, okay, um, chronic back pain may be, it's, it's one of the most common reasons why patients come into the clinic. And majority would probably be mechanical in nature, mechanical back pain. But again, an important minority would would compose would be composed of inflammatory back pain. And those are the patients that we really want to get the correct diagnosis because early diagnosis would also confer early treatment and better and improved outcomes. So Sheila, did uh, I don't think that um, uh, I certainly these are important that let, let us know that how good we are and doesn't change over time. I think that's important. I, and I think a lot of us are adept at using those tools to make this diagnosis. But in this inception cohort, did they identify non-radiographic axial spa and show how good that was over time? Um, not that they more, it's more of the, um, they focused on the diagnosis of AXPA. So, um, they just, uh, yeah, it's more of the diagnosis of accuracy. Anthony, what did you think of this uh, abstract? I think it highlights to us that the, 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 the thing that from the study, the thing that is most useful is the early imaging. Uh, compared to the clinical features, because if you see the study, some of them reverted to become non-expa uh, at a later stage. Uh, and those who had the positive MRI findings at the beginning were the ones that remain expa at two years. And I think the, um, the, 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 the takeaway from me is that imaging remains the most useful predictor uh, in terms of a future diagnosis uh, compared to clinical features in the early stage. Equally, there were some who with uh, B27 male who were strongly uh, positive for those factors became positive at a later stage. So I'm a bit of a dinosaur in, in that I, I believe in imaging, but I, I'm just talking x-rays. I, I seldom, if ever, do MRI on low back pain unless I'm considering non-radiographic access. Bar. What's uh, Bella, Rachel, what's the role of, of, of when to go to MR? I guess um, I'm still of a, sorry. <laughs> no, that's what I was going to say. Go ahead. I am still of, oh, I think like when x-rays can do the job, why go to MRIs? I mean, when you, when x-rays are not useful or like, you know, when they're uh, sort of equivocal or something, that's when I go to MRIs. Plus, I think the 
big point of this paper i feel is uh, also um early referrals there are patients with low back pain for years before they come to a rheumatologist and once they come to a rheumatologist i think like even a good history and x-rays sort of does the job for most of the patients right like mris we do need i think they are key uh, but only when these first few don't give you answers yeah, I, I agree, Bella. I think it's beyond the classification, right? We have classification criteria to give us a little more confidence, but um, kind of the concept around any type of ancillary, right? Whether that be your HLA-B27, whether that be your imaging, it should support what you already believe from your history. So it, it just kind of goes to bode with um, what we've learned about how important our histories and our our clinical findings are. And um, Jack, I'm going to hijack this for just a second because I want to keep talking about imaging. I think it's important. I'm going to actually throw a wrench into what I just said, Bella, because I grew up, my dad's a radiologist. I learned to order imaging. I do STIR and T1 and I follow protocols, whatever protocol my like group, um, my musculoskeletal radiology team wants. But just to, to kind of highlight something, so Alexis Ogdi presented pearls and pitfalls for the diagnosis of spondyloarthritis. And contextualizing this, she highlighted two things that were important to me. So in the era with the question about should we get MRIs, what should we be looking for? And with these kind of nebulous findings on MRI, and we know there's a consideration for pairing clinical, right, with our imaging, we often think of DISH, so, and you guys all know what DISH is, I'm sure, but just for our audience, diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, which I still think is very hard to say at some, some points in my life. Um, we often thought DISH did not appear to affect SI joints. Well, unfortunately, there's been an update to the guidelines, and it does. It can, in fact, um, have some changes, right, that we can see on imaging. So we can actually see enthesophytes, we can see bony bridging, and we can see hyperostosis in the SI joints. So this is only to highlight that, yes, if you're getting imaging, it's very important, but you have to pair it with that clinical feature, that clinical history for your patients. What do you guys think about that? Well, actually, um, Rachel, I was going to, since you've mentioned, you've talked about DISH, um, I, uh, in one of the poster sessions, there was uh, it was abstract eighteen sixty two, so it um it they they showed um, that there was an overlap between um, inflammatory and degenerative features on imaging of dish um, degenerative osseous changes and radiographic axpa. So um, again, going with what you were saying, I mean. We also need to watch out for mimics, I guess, because not all back pain, not all patients presenting with inflammatory back pain is AXPA. So we have to consider other um, conditions and this is one of them. And um, based on that study that I've mentioned, the um, ASTRA 1862, so they found overlaps when the thoracic and the lumbar spine were, um, were imaged. So, so you really have to um, it's a constellation of your clinical features, your history, and then your imaging. But ultimately, DISH and SPA, while they have overlaps, 
have criteria radiographically that distinguish one from the other. And rheumatologists and radiologists are familiar with that. But we're, since we're in this issue of um, diagnosis and referral, is anyone going to cover the Spartan recommendations? Was that on your list? Because uh, if not, I'll just briefly mention them. Uh, abstract um, 0841, um, Spartan has a draft of their recommendations for rheumatology referral. And they basically, and the problem with these recommendations, it's sort of like a rheumatologist wish list. Um, and, and it hinged, what they decided on was how many low back pain patients do you have to see or would you want to see before and, then, and have one of them be spa? Like, is it 10 to one? Is it three to one? Is it two to one? And they settled on like either three to one or four to one, you know, um, before I'll see. That, and, and those recommendations make that a productive consult because they just don't want to be deluged with lots of back pain. So again, through a process, I guess that was sort of like a RAND process in voting, they came up with you need uh, three or more points. And guess what? You get three points for sacroiliitis by uh, MR or X-ray. And a lot of the other criteria, the same criteria we have for the uh, and, and features for axial spinal arthritis, but that includes you know, two points for uh, acute phase reactions, two points for B27, two points for uveitis, and then one point each for IBD, psoriasis, um, back pain with a response to non-steroidals, back pain that improves with exercise, alternating butt, butt pain, and a family history. So I think it's a nice idea, but I think it's too self-serving. Like, do you really think what I want as a rheumatologist means anything to the primary care sector or the chiropractor or the, the, the orthopedist, they're going to read it, learn it. No, they're not, not unless you're going to advertise it and strongly make the point. Rachel, you're yeah. going to say. Do you read your own images? Uh, if, well, it depends on where I'm working. Um, yeah, there, that's where, currently where I work, I don't have access to the images um, digitally uh, on the computer or I get the reports. Um, and, um, but where I worked previously, yeah, I could look, I could get the digital or the actually written report and then look at it myself. And when I certainly, when I worked at the university, we could look at the x-rays and make them make that by ourselves. I think I'm pretty good being, um, looking at oh, thousands of x-rays of the SI joint. Um, I think I'm better than the average radiologist who's not a musculoskeletal radiologist. Um, but I do think we need to have better ways of really making that radiographic diagnosis and AI, all these reports of AI, you know, replacing, um, a lot of people, uh, and getting us really accurate reports, especially when you live out there in the middle of nowhere, um, I think is a good advance. Um, any other final comments on this, Anthony? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's gone the other way with the increased use of MRI. We've also seen a lot of overdiagnosis or overcall. And here at uh, ACR, we've seen some uh, ways of trying to standardize or centralize this. The group from Berlin, um, um, they looked at how they could centralize the review of these scans. So they had all these peripheral hospitals sending the scans and they were able to ensure that they had a correct diagnosis. And some of them were kind of de-diagnosed, if you like, um, having had initial uh, MRI suggesting XPAR. Because I think we also come across a lot of people with bone marrow edema from uh, healthy young people, there's maybe pregnancy changes. So while we are very keen to drive the early diagnosis, we also have to be cautious about overdiagnosis or overcall, especially if um, some of the radiologists may not be seeing uh, these scans regularly.
Yeah, that data from the UK, uh, it was also from the UK, also from Berlin, from Dennis Podovny and yeah. his group. Yeah, I think, but ultimately um, these are tools and you're going to become the digitally enhanced clinician in the future, but you have to make the decision about whether they do or they don't. Rachel, final comment? One last pearl, because that's really important. Sacroiliac changes. I had sacroiliitis technically. Um, it was osteitis condensa and ilii, right, after pregnancy. But we should not be imaging those patients until after at least a year postpartum. So that's just another pearl to help with that overdiagnostic potential from Dr. Ogdi. Rachel, any any further pearls from that session where um, Dr. Ogdi was giving uh, ro rolling out the pearls? Oh my gosh, she had so many. You're gonna have to go back and look at it. Honestly, it was just very rich. My area of interest tends to be a little more, um, at least when it comes to pearls imaging related. She had lots of pearls regarding um, other things you should look for, but those are the two that I really wanted to highlight. Yeah, and the good news is that um, I think if you uh, were a virtual uh, registrant or uh, a live registrant, you can go back and look at this content on demand. And I believe that session is going to be available, if not right now, in the next uh, few days. So that's that's a really um, that's great. I mean, I, I have tons more learning to do since I got home with this on-demand uh, access. Um, Anthony Chan, what was your um, highlight at the meeting? So, yeah, uh, mine was uh, abstract zero seven seven five, and this is a tapering study uh, called the Dress PS study from the Netherlands, and this is about um, tapering uh, with a treatment to target approach. Uh, in both XPA and PSA. There was the uh, data from, we heard about Arctic Rewind from the rheumatoid group, but in the SPA group, this was quite a nice study. So they had two groups. One was clinically driven and one was uh, protocol driven. At one year, the uh, daily defined dose for TNF, the DDD, was 52% in the, in, the in the protocolized uh, group, whereas it remained very high only at 77% in the, in the clinical only group. So, and but they both achieve a low disease activity despite the, um, the kind of most stringent tapering in the optimized group. That shows that it's possible to um, dose taper, but to follow a protocol and to ensure that the patients are not flaring. But when they went back to, when these patients in the optimized group were reverted back to clinical decision-making, then there was a dose escalation again in the 12-year in the extension. That group went up to 66% from 52%. Uh, this shows that if you are to dose taper, we have to do it in some protocolized way where the patients are monitored to ensure that they don't flare up. But it is possible to keep them in low disease activity and to reduce their exposure to TNF uh, in, the, in the long term. So that was my, um, my kind of takeaway from this study. You know, these tapering studies um, have interest. I, I, I must say they drive me crazy because I'm totally against it. And there is evidence that people get worse. And, and why would I spend my whole career trying to control these diseases only to allow them to get worse because of my neglect or my lack of guidance? But nonetheless, there's a reason to taper. And one, it's a financial reason, right? I mean, I think for jurisdictions that have to pay for this money and they'd like to know if they could save some money, it makes sense. The second reason is the patient taper, meaning they're going to taper whether you want them to or not. And being able to guide them makes sense. And the third reason would be the physician-driven taper, and that's a special kind of crazy um, that I'm not joining that group. But good luck if you if you are. The good the good the good news is there's papers like what Anthony's pointing out and others that that will support you. But then there's also paper those same papers will support me in saying 
this is not a good idea, you know. So anyway, what what are your views on tapering the rest of the uh, the panel here? Uh, I, I think like patients do it, as you said, whether you want it or not. Uh, if you sort of guide them through, maybe you'll know the answer or you'll know what they're doing. But um, especially in the U.S., you don't know if you prescribed a medication, if they've picked it up, they've taken it. Um, I, I think there is a few, few, few patients who are early and you've got them into remission. Um, I do support taper, but others, I'm, I'm a skeptic too. I don't want to just start tapering like... Uh, you know, even when you start a patient with a biologic or something, the first question they ask you is, how long do I need to take it? Even though they're like flaring, like, uh, you know, at least you say, let's see it for a year or two and decide. But they, that's the first question. So we have to listen to our patients. I agree. Rachel. I think it's... Go ahead, Sheila. Go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> go ahead. I mean, I, I'm going to just echo that. The only thing I will add is that um, sometimes, as you mentioned, Bella, patients taper not because they want to, but because it just happens, right? Some of the dosing schedules aren't always um, easy for a patient to remember. Did I take this every two weeks, et cetera? But um, one thing to consider is I've seen too many flares and I've seen too many, it, the, too many patients with the inability to recapture. And that makes me worried that if we are tapering for these patients, that we will have disease progression or we will have the inability to, to recapture those patients. And so I don't taper. Uh, at least in the RA studies, recapturing is not so bad. So that's, I mean, but I, but I don't know. There's a, I, I think that I've seen exactly what you said, Rachel. I, I want to uh, go ahead, Sheila. I want one final point on this, but I want to hear from you first. Yeah. So I also agree with what you said. Um, for example, in our area where most patients pay out of pocket, so it's, actually uh, the financial reasons would drive them to you know um would would they would tell the rheumatologist we need to taper even especially if for example they would feel improvements for the first few months and then they will ask you can we start tapering despite you um, telling them okay we may have to go for this medication for a number of years but then, you know, because of other considerations, socioeconomic and stuff like that. So, but, you know, if I were to choose, I would rather not taper as much as I would, you know, because um, we see the, we see what happens to our patients when tapering, particularly with, with spa patients. I think um, when we taper, there's really the risk of more flares um, and more difficult um, disease activities than when the patient started treatment so when a patient comes to see you um what happens next has to do with um the story that's in their head you know what's the story they're telling themselves and one could be that i trust this doctor um, or that i'm going to do everything they say uh, and but all that has to do with whether they're going to follow your instructions and take your medicines and come back and whatever and this whole issue of, of tapering or not by the patient is often multifactorial, but is often the patients want to believe I don't really have a lifelong devastating progressive disease. And then you have to play psychologist with them and under, help them understand over time. In the beginning, you don't want to, you know, really hammer them with that negativism. You want to hammer them with hope and give them some, you know, some rules and some goals. But, um, you know, over time, you know, you, you got to address the fantasies in their head 
about, I don't really have vasculitis. I don't really have ankylosing spondylitis. You know, I'm just seeing a rheumatologist for a while. I hope I can forget um, Dr. Chan's name at some point. And, uh, and that's what this all feeds into. So, well, so I, I'm just going to add to that. Just one thought that there is a lot of, I think for a long time, we could sort of control the psychology, but now there's like this huge social media presence that a lot of patients are sort of, most of them are okay, but there's like a lot of quacks on there. <laughs> which sort of feed patients with um, yeah. therapies that are not working. They're expensive and mm -hmm. patients still want to follow it because they believe that this is the cure ultimately. Um, obviously not evidence-based and that's something that is scary. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Bella, what's your next abstract? Um, so I think uveitis and axial spa, mm -hmm. I, I think that is one of the things that I sort of sometimes don't think about too much initially when I see patients and obviously it's a huge problem. So this is abstract 2550, uh, which is a systematic review and a network meta-analysis of 43 studies. Um, uh, they pulled around 9,000 patients, which is a lot, either on biologics or targeted synthetics. Um, and, you know, they looked at incidence rates of U anterior uveitis in these patients. Um, and what they found was, uh, you know, anti-TNFs, except etanercept, uh, work well uh, sort of to prevent uveitis. So it was like one per 100 patient years of uh, uveitis in anti-TNF group. In the JAKs, it was 1.4, so still pretty low. Um, uh, IL-17 was 2.2, etanercept was 3.2. So as we all know, etanercept probably doesn't penetrate the eye as much. Um, and then the placebo group was 4.3. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway is that the anti-TNFs and the JAKs sort of are better at preventing anterior uveitis. What did you think of the abstract 2548 about uveitis rates with bimikizumab looking like, looking a little better than the other IL-17s? It wasn't a head-to-head -head comparison. It was just a rate analysis of what they've done in their development trials with a few thousand patients. Um, does that make you think that maybe you would use uh, uh, this dual inhibitor of 17 in patients with uveitis? I think so, because I think IL-17 is not too, but, but I still, I, I think like we know that TNFs do a better job with it. So especially these sort of things, um, maybe if the TN, if on TNF failures, maybe that's when I would go to it because Jack's, I think like at least the New York patients are very skeptical about it. It's been tough well, to sort of push it down. Like they're, the patients are reading all kinds of things. Like I said, like social media or whatever, like there's too much influence, I feel, uh, for patients to pick up uh, drugs. Yeah. Anthony, where should we stand on IL-17 and uveitis? Oh, Ed, this Rachel, where, where's Rachel? He's coming back. He's got an answer. Had a, had a, sorry, Technical um, difficulty. Yeah, sorry, in the hospital. Uh, apologies for that. Um, my my feeling is that they don't make uh, uveitis worse, so that um, they the, this is the background. A lot of this is the background risk of the SPA itself, rather than promoting or making the loss of control. Uh, TNS would be still very much first line, and I think Jack Jack inhibitors are increasingly getting uh, into a good position there as an alternative should the patient not uh, respond to the TNS. But my feeling about IL seventeen is certainly not any worse. Uh, this should be this should reflect the background risk of uveitis. Okay. 
All right, so we're going to do another round. Let's do shorter presentations and shorter discussions. Rachel, why don't you begin? Begin. Well, Bella just mentioned that we have um, influence, right, with social media. So we actually have a celebrity amongst us right now. So I am actually going to defer a little bit. I'm going to set the stage. But I want Dr. Anthony Chan to give us a little bit of an update on abstract number 1410, which was actually his abstract that I was able to go see him present at the poster. So, Anthony, can you tell us about this delayed in diagnosis? So thank you. Um, we highlighted earlier about the Spartan criteria. But in fact, we go back to the ASAS criteria. ASAS in 2016 published a set of referral guide guidance to help us uh, define and detect uh, XBAR a bit earlier. And we have used that uh, around 2017 as an electronic uh, tool uh, where our primary care physicians, when they type back pain into the referral, it pops up and it gives them guidance as to when to refer patients. And these are patients who have uh, inflammatory back pain for more than three months below the age of 40. And then they have one of a host of uh, other criteria. And when you get to about three or four of these criteria, this makes it very likely that eventually they will have XBAR. And then they would come to our clinic and we're able to then do the MRIs, scans on them. And over this time, we have managed to reduce our delay to diagnosis, what we started off being eight years. Uh, in the last year, we've managed to get, get this down to one year uh, in terms of the symptom onset to the time of diagnosis. We find that we are picking up both radiographic and non-radiographic patients, and the male-female ratio is really one-to-one -one, uh, in this cohort. So it is possible, um, but then this needs to be followed up with training and education. It's good enough having the referral, but we need to explain to our primary care physicians how to actually apply the referral guidance so that uh, we are not uh, finding ourselves seeing a lot of mechanical back pain. And we've doubled our accuracy rate from what used to be one in three to now two in three of patients turning up to our clinic with the correct diagnosis. So th these are diagnoses by the primary care sector using uh, knowledge that you have afforded them? So these are uh, diagnoses by secondary care and by the specialists eventually, okay. but they are suspected when they see them in primary care and they apply these guidelines. And then if they meet a certain threshold, they get referred to our clinic. And we have found this quite effective as a way to try to streamline the referrals better into our clinics. Do you think this is something that NICE will uh, adopt, your National Health Service? Yeah, so it is in the NICE guidelines. Uh, the issue, I think, is about the training and the implementation of this, these guidelines. And we have spent the last two to three years trying to educate our primary care physicians more about EXPA. Uh, nationally in the UK, it's eight and a half years. We have uh, kind of tried to reduce that now down to a year. That's excellent. Rachel, what do you yeah. think of this? No, I mean, I, I thought this was one of ACR best. Um, I, I really appreciated the concept of a population level that you guys uh, put a lot of approach to. And what I really found to be just um, hopeful, I think, is that although this is in a nationalized healthcare system, these are tools we could all use for our own referral base. But taking this down from eight years to one for both non-radiographic and for AXPA, I mean, that's really, that's admirable and it's really commendable. So I knew you weren't going to bring it up, so I wanted to. Yeah. I mean, that's a game changer. Like, yeah. from years, because it's not just the seven years that you sort of uh, diagnose early. It's like the future of the patient, right? O over the next decades, next few decades. So that's great. And it's, and it's key that A, someone studies it, um, B, that someone 
shows that you have a better way in the sea, it, it becomes common knowledge and or part of the system or built into the EMR or whatever. So um, I think for many, many years, we talked about earlier referral of RA, and I think we believe that we did it. Um, but I think that a lot of that was common knowledge without real effort. Uh, and still, um, referral of early RA is not that great in the United States. Um, and I think that, that we, you could certainly lead the way with SPA. Um, I think it, in many ways, it could be easier to refer if you, you know, these three points or, you know, whatever you want to hang your hat on as far as education. Great effort. Jill, Jill, what's your next, next one? Okay, so my next one is abstract number 1402. So um, the investigators here just wanted to determine whether um, AXPA patients in their cohort or in their clinic, rather, um, this is from Canada, were meeting the recently published Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. So that guidelines um, integrate evidence-based targets for physical activity, sedentary behaviors, and sleep quality. And so what the study found out was that in, in among the patients attending their clinic, um, participants were highly engaged in physical activity and had less sedentary behaviors, but they had poor quality of sleep. So I think, you know, what the... Um, although the sample size was really small, um, and again, that would limit a strong conclusive um, data to be made, but it again um, brings us to the reality that um, apart from treatment options, we also look at the quality of life of our um, spa patients and sleep is an important factor. And I think um, further, you know, uh, like us, sleep is a very important, um, very important for us. So um, it affects the quality of life of our AXPA patients. And so I think further, it can, um, you know, give way for further investigations about sleep patterns or, yeah, sleep patterns in AXPA. And that could improve um, patients' quality of life altogether. Excellent. Any comment on that? Sleep's important, isn't it, Sheila? Yes, definitely. <laughs> if anything, it'll it, it'll minimize the secondary fibromyalgia complaints that these folks will show up with. Um, in addition to you know maintaining mobility and and quality of life, et cetera. So, all right, Anthony, what's your next one? Uh, so I've um, zero seven seven six is uh, the study on IV cytokinemap, only because I was interested to see how it would fare. Uh, in sort of routine use. We know that in the initial PSA and XPAR studies, they did use IV cyclokinumab as a loading dose, and then they were switched to subcutaneous. But here they have a study called Invigorate 2, which is a phase 3 uh, randomized control trial on IV cyclokinumab in PSA up to 52 weeks, and they gave them 6 milligram per kilogram at baseline and then 3 milligram per kilogram um, uh, monthly. Uh, and this was effective uh, um, and then, uh, you know, throughout the 52 weeks. You might say, why do you do this study? There's already sub-cut, sub-Q, sub-sacrokinumab. Why do you need to do this? I think it's just uh, important that there might be some patients, maybe a small population, for some reason, are not able to self-administer their subcutaneous sacrokinumab, uh, or there might be um, reasons for that. And so this is another option, I think, um, for, our, for our patients. I think this could be insurance driven too, right? Especially yes. in the US. Uh, Possibly. But yeah. I saw this study saying 
maybe they're doing it so that my CMS can pay for it. Uh, it's a, a lot of discussion amongst rheumatologists about this is a big advance. This is not a big advance. I, uh, so I'd be interested in, um, in your opinions. I think Bella points out that there may be some utility in Medicare patients in the U.S. Um, because then it's covered and uh, it's another option. Um, Rachel, is this a, an important advance to our arsenal or, or not so much? I think it's, it's important. I think that having access to patient care is important. I think having from, um, coverage from payers is very important. So as Bella mentioned, I also think it's nice because we do have a few of those patients who we worry about compliance. And this is one area that may be helpful to keep um, patients more compliant if we're doing intra-office infusion. Uh, Sheila, if this was available to you, would you do you think there's a subset of patients who would you would you would use this in? Yes, I think there would be, but it's more. I think it's more driven by insurance or coverage of um, insurance, and I think the only um, when it well actually when I um, came across the study or when this study started to come out, I was also asking myself why would they do a. Uh, IV preparation when um, subcutaneous in terms of convenience is really convenient for the patient. But I guess, yeah, there are subset of patients who would um, best, you know, um, or who would more likely be better with giving, being given IV, um, secukinumab and support from um, insurance. So, yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to ask me if this is a big thing, um, I'm not quite sure. But at least you give the patients other options than just the subcutaneous route. Uh, yeah. I'm not surprised that it works, right? Like it will work. The subcutaneous works. So the IV will, I mean, hopefully there's no, it's not a surprise. But yes, it's a good sort of option. Yeah. I, I The other important factor here, Anthony, is that the infusions were three milligrams per kilogram, but the FDA approved dose is 1.75 milligrams uh -huh. per kilogram, which they had more evidence of. And the reason it was approved that dose is because they had enough evidence in play that that's what the FDA would approve. If the company wanted to have a variable uh, dose, they're gonna have to do more studies and delay the approval. So they went forward. So it's kind of fixed dosing, it's weight-based dosing. Fixed dosing, if you want, some variability, you're going to have to go sub-Q or get a letter from your mother as to why they need the dose that the FDA didn't approve. So, uh, okay. No. Uh, who has another? Bella, your next quick one? Yes. Um, so this is uh, looking at neutrophils in active spa. Uh, so this was uh, abstract 2233. Uh, it's postdoc analysis for uh, DISCOVER 1 and 2 uh, trials. Uh, you Looking at guselkumab, um, again, uh, I, I think the reason it's important is that they're trying to find other sort of easy biomarkers to predict response. Um, so neutrophils, you know, IL-20, you know, neutrophils, uh, IL-23 is um, increased in uh, psoriatic arthritis. What the medication does um, is at week four decreases the neutrophil and the neutrophil lymphocyte ratios. And uh, these are things that are sort of being popular. I, I've seen a few abstracts even in the RA world uh, looking at this ratio and trying to predict flares or fatigue or something like that. 
uh so here what we what they saw was at week 4 um, uh, mo- uh all those patients who had low neutrophil counts on at week 4 uh sort of had a higher probability of achieving like bas di 20 acr 50 uh pas das and and those sort of uh, patient reported uh, or or like uh, outcome measures um not for enthesitis as much but for the others so i just think like it, it was interesting that this is something that we commonly do and can help with some sort of prediction yeah neutrophils are we don't talk a lot about but they're they're the um they're the uh whipped cream on the sunday I mean they really do all the damage all the work all the whatnot and um and so i i like studies that pay attention to neutrophils um i like studies that use cheap tests like neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio it's there on your cbc you know get out your little calculator and you know when it's above 3 they're not doing very well when it's 4 5 and 6 uh-oh you're going to be in a lot of trouble i don't care what your disease is um so i i think this was smart i i don't know that it'll become a biomarker though that's uh, for some reason this doesn't get traction when it should but um anybody else think this is a good biomarker or see other good biomarkers at the meeting this meeting wasn't rich in biomarkers in general um I, i must say uh at least ones that i think that had had any traction uh, i want to bring up the uh eiser study all of you covered this uh the eiser study was abstract um 0495 uh it was a poster it was a cross sectional analysis in spain of, of over 500 patients and they who had spa um generally uh looks like they were split between axial spa and psa uh half were women um or and they had 10 12 years of these activity they screened everybody with fecal calprotectin looking for evidence of occult uh IBD and they found a surprising number like um you know with a cutoff of 80 um they found it in about half of the patients and then they used that as a next step reason to either do capsule colonoscopy but most of them I think got got real colonoscopy And in the end they found 4.4% who had IBD. So in on one hand it's a big study to find a few patients. Um but along the way in between that 4.4 who had definite IBD there was a whole bunch of people who had colon colon abnormalities on colonoscopy which were like eh, maybe these people evolved. And so I think it was worthwhile because you then they're now in the hands of the gastroenterologist and if they find abnormalities they're going to be following up on abnormalities and we'd like we think that they're going to be maybe a little bit better in finding IBD and the important point here is the vast majority of these patients didn't have GI symptoms you know some of them did um so this is a um a fairly new story in the last year or so that uh, of uh, occult IBD occurring and um and In fact, I I want to even really get into a crazy tangent right now and that is, you know, IL17 uh inhibition causing colitis. When I've had that happen in, in my clinic, um that colitis didn't go away when I went through the IL17 inhibitor. Meaning I think that that pushes people who have pre-existing colitis to fully manifest their Crohn's more so than ulcerative colitis. Uh and so and, and we know this whole subclinical colitis story back from the days of sulfasalazine. So, um anybody have any interesting comments or further comment on the Eiser study? 
I just think it highlights that we need to keep asking patients questions because even though there were um, patients who maybe didn't have uh, inflammatory bowel symptoms, family history, there, there were a lot of contextualized questions that we really, we need to know more and we need to be following these patients a little bit more closely in terms of um, the spectrum of disease. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to yeah, screen screen these patients more carefully, especially when uh, we are choosing therapies such as IL-17. Uh, NSAIDs themselves can also raise fecal calprotectin. So that also needs to be, um, you know, evaluated in the context of all the decisions we're making for our patients. So do you, do you regularly do fecal calprotectin on all patients? No, I do that... patients, you know. Go ahead, Anthony. I'm sorry. You, you have experience. I do in patients who are symptomatic. A lot of them have been labeled as irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. But in fact, we do find that some of them do have raised fecal calprotectin. We refer them to our gastroenterologist before we um, choose any therapies that might affect their gut. You know, and what we're what I heard at the meeting is a lot of people, uh, and even GI people, are saying that fecal calprotectin is uh, ultra sensitive, and you'll find a lot of abnormalities that you don't necessarily want to chase down. And so the natural question is, well, then what is the screening tool? And I think what I've gotten out of this, I, I hope maybe uh, you might have a different one, is awareness is the screening tool. Uh, worry, being worried about this and, as Rachel said, asking the questions at each visit, uh, do they have GI symptomatology that you can, you know, uh, say is not due to their medicines like non-steroidals. Uh, and then uh, having a, low, a, a high index of suspicion and a low threshold for referral. So I think that's the best you can do. I'd love to have another another good screening test like fecal cal protection, but I don't think we have one. So, all right, let's say if we can, uh, let's end with one abstract number and a one-liner to make the audience think, oh, that's the one I should take a look at. So can you give me a uh, abstract number and a one-liner about why the audience might look at it and then we'll wrap up. Um, Sheila, do you have one? Okay, I have um, two five four seven. It's the um, difficult characteristics of difficult to treat um, AXPA. Of course, we don't have um, specific set of guidelines yet, but in that paper, they found that patients with um, longer disease duration, peripheral involvement, higher BASDI levels at baseline, and fibromyalgia. Um, we're associated with difficult to treat okay. AXPA. Too much. I just want to, <laughs> when you get when you said difficult to treat AXPA, you had them. Either they're interested yeah. or they're not. Uh, okay. Rachel, do you have one? I'll just bring uh, forth one that uh, Sheila had commented on previously, not in this session that we're talking about, but abstract 0516. Just remember that the expectations for AXPA may differ between patients and physicians. <clears throat> Patient perceptions. Anthony. Yeah, I was uh, looking at 1690. We got uh, some information on a premolus, uh, a drug that we've used quite a lot in the past, but lacking a lot of structural or imaging data. It was presented as an uh, MRI data, which is quite useful in terms of making some of our treatment decisions. That's the foremost study, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, Bella, you have last say. So, uh, APSEC 0844. 
this is showing that um, uh, you know where the inflammation is is where the ankylosing happens so facet joint inflammation is rare but when it's present uh, that's when uh, where ankylosing happens um, and uh, they they show it very beautifully in uh, mri data excellent i want to thank our faculty for all their hard work in the last five or six days actually they've been preparing for weeks ahead of the meeting studying the the abstracts and making up their hit list uh, you did a fabulous job in, in highlighting the content from this meeting and, and reviewing it here today. Uh, that's it. I want to tell the audience to tune in and look at more of these topic panel discussions. We have them for RA, for lupus, for PSA, for uh, and also for the JAK inhibitors uh, as well. So look for those either as videos or podcasts. Take care now. Bye-bye.